Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for an older episode. This one was called I Want a New Blood, and it was originally published October 8th, 2020. So we're still dipping into the Halloween last year season. Yep, so we've, we've got the, the fake blood on drip for this one, so uh, let's drink up. I'm imagining uh, like a box wine, you know, in the cardboard yes. cube. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Doc, I've been thinking. I need a new blood. Oh, the animal blood. It's not working? Yeah, I tried it. It made me crash my car. Made me feel, you know, about three feet thick. Well, what about true blood? Just hit the market. Eh, headache, dry mouth, made my eyes too red. Well, there's currently a clinical trial for something called Daybreaker. I'll stop you right there, Doc. I got some on the black market. Made me vomit and explode. But what exactly are you looking for? Well, you know, I don't want to go crazy with hunger. Uh, I don't want my fangs too long. Uh, I also don't want it to spill uh, or come in a pill. Now, now, you're rhyming again. Have you been taking your Synthogor? Because that's one of the withdrawal symptoms. I'm all out, Doc. And I don't imagine you have anything else around here uh, on tap. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamp. And I'm Joe McCormick, and here we are, covered in blood. That's right. Uh, Last year, we put uh, out a Halloween episode titled, I Drink Your Blood Type. All about blood types uh, that, you know, humans have, but with a vampire (laughs) flavoring. I think we did a fun skit at the beginning of that one. Um, We briefly mentioned synthetic blood in vampire fiction in that one. I remember we did reference True Blood as well as a 1939 film titled The Return of Dr. X, which I haven't seen yet. I still haven't seen this one, but it stars Humphrey Bogart as an evil doctor uh, with this kind of like skunk streak in his hair and round Mm -hmm. glasses. Glasses, who's been brought back to life with synthetic blood. The hair suggests Elsa Lanchester, like in Bride of Frankenstein. It does. Yeah, you definitely can see the Frankenstein DNA, uh, the, maybe even the lazy Frankenstein DNA in this uh, costume design. Now, in that episode, like you said, we mainly ended up talking about natural uh, properties of blood types, what evolutionary pressures drove the development of different blood types, uh, how that functions in medicine. And then I think we also talked about some pseudoscientific beliefs about blood types and personality and psychology. Uh, But I think we only briefly mentioned the possibility of synthetic blood or using something other than human blood in your veins. Yeah, that's right. We did. We didn't get into the topic uh, all that much. And subsequently, we had some listeners suggested for October 2020 fair. So here we are. Now, first and foremost, we should really establish what blood literally is and maybe a little bit about what it metaphorically is. So blood is technically both a fluid and a tissue, since it's made out of similar specialized cells suspended in a liquid matrix of plasma. It carries oxygen and nutrients to the cells and carries off carbon dioxide and other waste products. The heart pumps it through the body, but it's also part of the larger circulatory system. So organs like the kidney and the lung are also important to blood. And of course, if we lose enough blood in a short enough period of time, we die. As we all know, yes. Uh, and it's, it's amazing to stop and think how blood is not just in your body, 
but constantly moving throughout it. You know, like while you're alive, it never stops. This is one of those ideas that sometimes makes me feel the, you know, the flame run under my skin. It's, it's just a little too creepy thinking about how even when I'm sitting perfectly still and perfectly at rest, the blood is still going. It's rushing through every inch of me. And that's true for all of us, of course. And so one thing I was wondering actually is how long does it take for each red blood cell to circulate all the way through your body and make it back to the heart? Uh, I was reading an interesting Q&A by the Naked Scientists where they worked out the math on this, and I thought this was pretty cool. So it depends on a number of factors, but their estimate was that for most people, the body performs a complete blood circuit roughly every minute. Wow. Uh, and they found this because the average adult has you know roughly five liters of blood in the body. The average heart pumps about 70 milliliters of blood every time it beats. And the average resting heart rate is something like 70 beats per minute. And if you multiply all these together, you find that the heart circulates about 4.9 or close to five liters of blood every minute. So on average, it probably takes about one minute for your heart to circulate your entire blood volume. And it does this minute after minute, after minute, until you die. Isn't that crazy the longer you look at it? Yeah, this idea of this endless river of blood just circulating through your body. Now, blood, of course, also has taken on various uh, additional connotations, uh, connotations of heredity, class, race, violence, sacrifice, and more. I was reading an article titled Biosecuritization, The Quest for Synthetic Blood and the Taming of Kinship by Kath Weston. Uh, the author gets, gets a bit deeper into the connotations that we'll be discussing today, but there were several aspects worth highlighting. First of all, just the idea of royal blood and the divine right of kings, the idea that there's like literally there's something in the bloodline. Um, the idea of blood is a signifier of kinship, the, you know, the idea that your relatives are your blood relatives, etc. And uh, an interesting thing that Weston points out, too, is uh, a historical tidbit, is that blood transfusion uh, during its history has been objected to for both religious reasons, and we'll get into an example of that in a bit, but also for reasons steeped in racist ideologies, um, and so the, uh, you know, the, the metaphorical idea of blood has often seemed to muddy our biological understanding of blood. I think what this comes down to is that in many ways, blood is seen as some kind of essence, that it's not mm -hmm. just a part of the body that plays a particular role in, um, in energy and the oxygenation of tissues and the removal of waste products and the circulation of chemicals, hormones and things throughout the body. But it also is somehow the soul of the thing. It, uh, it, yeah. There are properties inherent to the animal or the human that are represented by or born through the blood in particular. Yeah, it gets kind of weird when you think about the fact that, like, on, on one hand, to think that the blood is not us, that the blood is just this this oil that we run on, like, that's that's not completely correct. Like, the blood, we, we are our blood. The blood is part of our body. Again, it's, it's tissue and a liquid. Uh, but on, on the other hand, it, we're not just the blood. It's not like if you drained all our blood out and put us in a jar, that's not us in the jar and an empty shell over here. Like, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of, of myths, for instance, that involve something like blood in other beings, like the, uh, the episode we did on Talos, the, the bronze automaton, mm -hmm. and the idea that he had this I-core in his body that was like the magical 
substance that uh, that made him function, and that, that reveals a lot about how blood was was considered in prior ages. Yeah, it's like the oil in the car engine, but it's also the it's somehow magical. It's somehow bearing the properties of godhood. And when you take out the plug and allow all of the the I-Core to drain out, you just kind of comes to a halt. Yeah. So indeed, like the idea of taking the blood from one person, the blood that is part of that person and putting it into another person, you know, that 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 opens up the the door for a lot of, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, metaphorical ideas about what that means. What does it mean that that person is now in me um, or what or in, in the when there is an injury? What does it mean that a lot of me is now like on the pavement? <laughs> that sort of thing. Now, that brings us to what the, we're mainly going to be talking about today, the, the idea of blood transfusions. Again, uh, if you lose too much blood in a short period of time, uh, you can die. One way that we know that that can be prevented today is by adding more blood, assuming it is the correct sort of blood. When a blood transfusion is done correctly, it can save lives. It's a, you know, this is, a, a, I think, something that, that most of us are familiar with. Uh, and as we detailed in last year's episode, which I think we recently re-ran uh, in our feed, uh, one does have to get it just right to respect the different blood types. And this was a significant hurdle to overcome in medical science. Totally. But the idea of synthetic blood or a blood substitute, you know, the idea of there being something other than blood that you could fill one up with uh, when you, you're facing a, a life-threatening shortage, um, the key argument here would be, you know, something could be manufactured ahead of time and to some degree kept on a shelf for use in times of emergency. So uh, this would, you know, just decreasing to some extent the reliance on blood and tissue donation. Um, I think it's also been argued that this would be ideal if you were dealing with a very far-flung situation. You can't have a proper blood bank on hand, but perhaps you have some sort of short-term substitute that can be used instead. But of course, the other side of the scenario is that such blood would be a product, not unlike true blood uh, from the TV show that we mentioned earlier. Uh, we'll discuss where we are in our quest for a, a true blood substitute. But first, we want to explore some of the earliest and really some of the weirdest and grossest ideas for synthetic blood. It's really a, a, a wonderfully bizarre uh, bit of history. So one of the sources I was looking at here uh, is titled Artificial Blood by Suman Sarkar, and it was published in 2008 by the Indian Journal of Critical Care Medicine. And in this, the author points out that the notion of artificial blood has pretty much stirred in the human mind for as long as people have bled to death from their injuries. Like we've we've realized that there's something and, and, and this can get kind of, I think, kind of vague and magical as to the, you know, the idea that blood is important. And if we lose it, we can die. And hey, if it's loss means death, perhaps it's um, it, to add blood is to add life or to restore it. Now, certainly there's a, there's a mix of magic and myth and early medicine here. Uh, Sarkar points to Incan folklore depicting something arguably like blood transfusion. I've also seen it pointed out elsewhere that Odysseus temporarily resuscitates underworld shades by offering them um, blood sacrifice in the Odyssey. The idea of blood as, uh, if not a biological underpinning of life, you know, something tied up with our conception of the life force. 
that uh, that passage in uh, the Odyssey uh, is is pretty stirring. I was looking at a, a Robert uh, Fagel's translation of it, and basically uh, Odysseus is instructed to, um, to 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 flay and then burn these um, the, the the animals, the sacrificial rams or, or what have you, in order to like draw in the spirits of the dead so that he can commune with them. And then, of course, later on uh, he does it, uh, and it's uh, it's it's actually really rather creepy. Yes, and I would say one reason is that it contains this older Greek view of the afterlife, sort of the pre-Platonic view of the afterlife in Greek thought, which is uh, less the idea of, you know, places of possible reward or punishment and more the idea that everyone who dies just dwells forever in this miserable, confused dungeon of shades. All right, on that wonderfully um, spooky note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with tales of early blood transfusions. All right, we're back. Now, in talking about substitutes for human blood that can be hooked up to your veins, uh, one of the easiest places, you know, you can imagine people would have looked is to the blood of other animals. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and at, this, at this point, we're going we're gonna to move to around uh, 1616, because that's when uh, a, a man by the name of William Harvey described blood circulation, which is going to be key, just a, a better understanding of like what's actually going on with blood. And in the following years, numerous substances were tried out as a stand-in for human blood. And the list provided by Sarkar in that article I cited earlier is pretty horrific. It includes beer, urine, uh, milk, plant resins, and of course, sheep blood. Now, sheep's blood is at least blood, right? So at least it has that going for it. And and this is known as xenotransfusion. Uh, the first documented xenotransfusion was conducted by French physicians Jean-Baptiste Dunis and Paul Imerez in 1667, and it apparently was successful between a 15-year-old boy and a lamb. Uh, yeah, th- so this first one was largely reported as successful. I think that could be defined in a number of ways, depending on you know, what you like, what you call success. At least it was reported that the 15-year-old boy felt good afterwards. But this whole saga of Jean-Baptiste Denis is actually I, – I started looking into this a little bit deeper, and the more I looked, the weirder and weirder it got. <laughs> uh, so I, I want to take a digression here to talk about uh, Denis and his, his historical context. So one of the papers I want to look at is by Benjamin H. Chin Yi and Ian H. Chin Yi, published in the Canadian Bulletin of Medical History in 2016 called Blood Transfusion and the Body in Early Modern France. Now, a lot of this paper is concerned with what medical worldview guided the work of late 17th century physicians like Denis and Denis' contemporaries. And the authors argue that the physicians of France in this time did not really have a unified system of anatomical theory guiding their work, but rather a somewhat contradictory patchwork of contemporary natural philosophy and anatomical research with a received background of Galenic humoralism. So this is the system that you're probably pretty familiar with by this time that uh, views health issues as largely related to the balance and status of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. This is received from, uh, not invented by, but sort of shaped and received by the Roman physician Galen. 
Now, the authors of this paper tell the story of the first documented xenotransfusion with some quotes from the report at the time. Uh, as you said, the patient was a 15-year-old boy, and he had already been through 20 rounds of bloodletting. This was in order, quote, to assuage the excessive heat uh, that was a result of the boy's violent fever. And in Galenic theory, blood is associated with heat and excitation. This is part of the place we get the idea of uh, being sanguine, right? You know, ha having an excess of blood makes you sort of ebullient and, and excited and energetic. Uh, but this could be bad in, in, uh, in Galenic thinking by causing fevers, by causing mania and that sort of thing. So th they let this guy's blood 20 times. And after the 20 bleedings, quote, his wit seemed wholly sunk, his memory perfectly lost, and his body so heavy and drowsy that he was not fit for anything. Mm, all right. So, so basically a situation where the, the bathtub was too hot. Uh, so <laughs> let some of the, the bath water out. Now it seems a bit too cold. Right. The problem is that, yeah, he's, he's appearing sluggish. It seems something is wrong with his brain. Maybe he doesn't have memories or much energy. Uh, so Denis counters this by starting a transfusion. He draws blood from the carotid artery of a lamb and then that blood goes into the vein in the boy's arm. Ultimately, the boy received about nine ounces of lamb blood. And then Denis wrote that, quote, afterwards, he hath no longer that slowness of spirit nor heaviness of body, which before rendered him unfit for anything. He grows fat visibly and in brief is a subject of amazement to all those that know him and dwell with him. So Denis concludes, yeah, it seems like he's doing good. Uh, and th this was on June 15th, 1667. But blood transfusions can be unpredictable. There can be wildly different reactions in different patients, depending on uh, often how the host's immune system in particular responds to what's being put into the veins. And as we've been talking about, despite being on the cutting edge of 17th century anatomy and new surgical techniques, Denis was also still in the grip of Galenism, which had been a, you know, a dominant force in European medicine since the Roman Empire, and which attributed the bulk of medical pathologies to imbalances or corruptions in the four humors. And Denis himself, he agreed with this. He believed, quote, the greatest part of our diseases are but results of the distemper and corruption of the blood. Now, he doesn't say quite every disease, but you can imagine he thinks most of them. So like, oh, no, you've got arthritis. Uh, your problem is you got bad blood uh, or, you know, you've got, oh, a fever. I think that's that's a blood issue. We got to get some of that blood out. And so as a result, he believed, quote, the speediest and commonest remedy they have in practice is to evacuate the same by phlebotomy. Phlebotomy means bloodletting or else refresh it and cool it by juleps. <laughs> uh, so in other words, if, you know, for most diseases, the cause is bad blood and the best treatment is to drain the blood out or possibly to give the patient juleps. Uh, the paper doesn't explain what juleps means here. So I tried to look this up. I think what juleps refers to here is a flavored drink, for example, rose water sweetened with sugar syrup. All right. So this is when we, we talk, say, about a mint julep, this is a, the same word. Yeah, I think it was later on that julep came to often have alcoholic connotations. I think at this time, it, it just would have meant a, a flavored drink, not necessarily with alcohol in it. I don't know why that is thought to deal with corruption of the blood. But that is amazing. You know, can you imagine you show up at the hospital with 
dengue fever or whatever, and they're like, we need to get you some rose water. <laughs> yeah, or if the or the two possible uh, treatments uh, on the table are bleeding or a sweet drink. It's like, yeah, uh, essentially you're going to have Kool-Aid or they're going to drain you into a bucket. Well, it seems mm. like between the two, Denis kind of favored one over the other. It seems like he, yeah. he was a bleeder. And yeah, that, that kid had not had 20 uh, juleps <laughs> prior to the lamb blood. <laughs> to be fair, I don't know how many juleps he had, but they did bleed him 20 times. Uh, <laughs> maybe he got a julep every time. Who knows? <laughs> it's like the brownie they give you in the when you go to donate blood, you know? You get brownies? Oh, man, I get, um, uh, like, peanut butter crackers. Sometimes oh. I get, uh, what is it? Uh, this is a special treat. Oh, Nutter Butters. Sometimes they're Nutter Oh, butters. I've seen the Nutter Butters, yeah. The, yeah. That confirmed in my experience. Like, it, it forces me to equate peanut butter with the blood. Like, basically, mm-hmm. we, you know, we're thinking about the, the same thing here. It's like, well, I lost some blood. Got to get some peanut butter in there. That taste of the Nutter Butter or the, what, what is, it's, I was trying to remember the name of the uh, the the little brownie that's got the colorful sprinkle on top that they they give you sometimes. And Seth chimed in. They're called cosmic brownies. We think. Really? Yeah. I've never heard of that. I mean, I've heard well, of, like space brownies. I believe Seth. Um, space cakes, but I don't think you should have one of those after uh, <laughs> blood donation. You should have some space shrimp cocktail after blood donation. <laughs> uh, but anyway, okay. So so bleedings, bleedings, uh, all, all those bleedings. Obviously, that Denis loves. They can really take a toll, as described, you know, what happened to this 15-year-old. So, Denis saw blood transfusion from animals as a perfect complement to bloodletting. And in his words, it's, quote, the old and corrupt being first evacuated could then make room for the new and pure. So, in the case of the June 1667 transfusion, this teenage boy, he's bled 20 times to bring down his fever. He's pretty low after that. And then lamb's blood is used to revive him with a fresh, clean, non-corrupted supply. But Denis did not stop there with the xenotransfusions. Later that same year, Denis also transfused sheep's blood into the veins of a healthy 45-year-old sedan chairman. Now, that means he was one of those guys who carries fancy people around in a litter, you know, so if you're fancy and you don't want to get your boots wet, you can ride mm-hmm. in a box where four guys carry you on poles. So you have to imagine if, if this guy's a professional sedan chairman, he's probably pretty fit, right? Yeah, he's got to be kind of a hoss. And for that reason, I've seen this case and the, the idea that it, it, there's no identified cause for it. It seems like this was maybe a negative control, just like seeing what a transfusion does into a healthy guy. And reportedly, this guy was fine. And then after that, Denis performed a transfusion of calf's blood on a Swedish nobleman who was dying of an unspecified illness in Paris. And uh, the first transfusion this guy got seemed to sort of enliven him, bringing him back a bit, freshen him up. But then he died while in the middle of receiving his second transfusion. We don't know why he died. But then finally, the authors tell the story of how Denis performed, uh, again, a similar operation on a 34-year-old man named Antoine Maroy in an attempt to treat a supposed mental illness. I I read this case described more fully in another paper by James G. Chandler, Teresa L. Chin, and Max V. Wollauer called Direct Blood Transfusions in the Journal of Vascular Surgery from 2012. And uh, I I was having trouble finding out exactly what 
Maroy's symptoms were. The the main report about him, the main symptom that is described is that he would, quote, intermittently disappear from his suburban home to indulge in Paris's sensual pleasures. <laughs> I'm not sure well, yeah, if that's that, actually a symptom of an illness, but. Right. I mean, because certainly that that could go along. That could certainly be the practice of one who's suffering from a, a true mental illness. But, uh, you know, this could also just this could also be a case of uh, you know, sexual addiction or they or it could just be, you know, merely this person had a, a very, you know, exciting sex life that they decided to treat uh, medically. Yeah, so I don't know. But it is widely reported. At the time, everyone says he was a known madman. So uh, without any other, uh, we just have to assume that there is something else going on with him, I guess. Okay. So Denis, of course, attributed this supposed insanity to humoral imbalance. Denis's solution, well, you got to remove this man's blood and replace it with calf's blood. And Denis believed that the sweetness and freshness of the calf's blood would temper the ardor and the boiling of the man's existing blood. So Denis tries this out. They bled him of 290 milliliters of his own blood, and then they put about 175 milliliters of blood from a calf's femoral artery into a vein in Moroy's arm. And it was reported that his temperament became more subdued by the process, so it was repeated in the presence of a number of observing physicians a few days later. And this second transfusion did not go as well as the first one. Roy reacted first by, he said he had lumbar pains, a pain in the lower back and tightness in his chest, and he presented an irregular pulse. And then the next day, this progressed into vomiting and a nosebleed, and maybe most alarmingly, uh, to quote from Denis' report, he produced a tall glass of urine as black as if it had been diluted by my fireplace. Oh, I, I want to be clear here that it, it may sound, it may come through a little bit like I'm, I'm purely laughing on my side, but um, this is, I, I'm feeling a, a, an immense sense of revulsion here. This has just given me the all over. Oh yeah, God. Uh, so you, you would think this would suggest the transfusion was a bad idea, right? <laughs> this guy's, yeah, yes. he's experiencing chest pain, back pain. He's vomiting, his nose is bleeding, and he's peeing black. Yes, but Denis considered it a success. And the reason he considered it a success was he interpreted the results according to humoral theory. He believed that the black urine was an evacuation of excess black bile from the body, which he wrote is known to send vapors up into the brain, which disrupt its function. So according to Denis, he had been mistaken that the problem was too much corrupted blood. Instead, the problem was too much corrupted black bile, and the transfusion had caused the body to evacuate it all. And Denis believed that his transfusion had somewhat succeeded in curing Maroy. Oh, it's such a, the, the, the history thus far is, is very fascinating because, you know, if you're not familiar with it and you hear about, okay, the first blood transfusion and it's going to involve a human and, um, and, and a lamb, you just assume it's going to end in just disaster, just end in death, and that that will be a stumbling block. Uh, but then it's not, uh, or seemingly not. And then in this case, something that seems like a firm warning, um, do not proceed, uh, rethink what you're doing, is interpreted as a success. 
Yeah, exactly. Though not by everyone, I should note, because the the paper by uh, Chin Yi and Chin Yi notes that there was a rival Parisian physician named Guillaume Lamy, who he, he disagreed, and he argued that the black urine was a negative reaction to the calf's blood. But the reason he said was that it was indicative of the body's attempt to purge the contamination of a substance that was against its nature, which eh, mm. sounds kind of close, but I think this opposition is being infused with, you know, ideas of sort of like spiritual essentialism that are n- not really proper in medicine. Uh, right. it, it sounds to me like Maroy was probably suffering from what is now called an acute hemolytic reaction, which is a, a widely known rare side effect of a blood transfusion, I guess more common if it is not a properly controlled blood transfusion. And this is where the recipient's immune system interprets the donor red blood cells as invasive pathogens and attacks them. Uh, Hemolysis in in the name, acute hemolytic reaction, hemolysis means the destruction of red blood cells. And then the red blood cells under attack release a substance into the blood that the body has to try to purge. And this substance can cause severe damage to the kidneys. And this will sound pretty familiar now. Symptoms of an acute hemolytic reaction include, among other things, chest and lower back pain, nausea, and dark urine. But then there is an even stranger epilogue to the Maroy story. Uh, So picking up with uh, what's covered in the Chandler et al. paper, Denis, of course, considered Maroy somewhat cured, and I guess this meant that he was no longer a seeker of sensual pleasures, at least at first, after what happened. And the authors here say that at first Maroy behaved as his wife wished, but then he became truculent again. And they say this was, quote, prompting her to insist on another transfusion. Maroy refused to cooperate and received no blood. So he was going to get a third transfusion, but it didn't go forward. And then, quote, he died that evening and his wife, perhaps with the encouragement of some physician critics, accused Denis of killing her husband. Denis was tried for manslaughter, but exonerated when it was discovered that Mrs. Maroy was poisoning her husband with arsenic. Mm. And then the following year, the French parliament enacted a ban on transfusion of blood into humans. So he tries to do this third transfusion, uh, doesn't work out. Maroy dies. His wife is found to have been poisoning him, or at least is believed to have been poisoning him, and then we get a ban on on transfusions in France. But it also doesn't stop there, because while you can imagine it's common enough for a person to be murdered by a spouse, the story gets even more complicated. I, I was reading about a book by a Vanderbilt University historian named Holly Tucker that argues the case for a conspiracy of rival physicians to intentionally murder Antoine Maroy and frame Denis for causing his death. Now, I haven't read this book, though it sounds extremely interesting, uh, but I want to give you the gist, uh, mostly based on a review in the Journal of Clinical Investigation by Neil Blumberg. So to start, we know that Denise Galenic humor theory was hopelessly misguided, right? This is not a good basis for medical intervention. There is no reason to think that blood from a docile lamb will treat mania in humans. Mental illness doesn't work that way. And there's no way to predict or prevent which of these would result in a severe or life-threatening rejection of the donor blood. But despite how misguided and dangerous Denise's treatments were, Denise's rivals opposed them for almost equally misguided reasons. A lot of these, uh, I, I think some were probably just sort of 
motivated by ambition. You know, there were kind of temporal and political rivalries. But many of Denis' opponents had extreme religious and conceptual opposition to blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. For example, some of them believed that the transfusion of blood from an animal could turn a human into a type of chimera or some kind of animal-human hybrid. You might become a subhuman were-lamb or a were-calf, which is very (laughs) Gary Larson. That is, yes. Uh, And some also believed that the ingestion of foreign blood through transfusion was a slippery slope to cannibalism. I'm not quite sure how you get there, but that at least was, was argued. Yeah, because it's, I mean, it's not like the, the, the humans we're talking about here weren't already eating meat. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. I would think the, but, the eating of meat would more likely give way to cannibalism than the transfusion of blood from animals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this might sound kind of outlandish. Like, well, how could you get to that? You know, how could you have this kind of opposition to blood transfusions? But uh, I know the case is made in Holly Tucker's book and Bloomberg himself brings up as a point of comparison that, quote, one might consider that current disagreements about stem cell therapies are similar in nature, as some find it impossible to separate considerations of religious belief and scientific approach. Uh, So even today, we, we certainly do have you know, bioethical debates that are largely prompted by religious beliefs. That's true. That's true. I mean, um, you know, you certainly think to, to any number of, um, of, of, of chimerical um, uh, studies that have come out, you know, uh, there's always going to be that, that voice of criticism that's going to raise the specter of some sort of, uh, uh, you know, man-goat hybrid or whatever the case may be. Right. This is against uh, nature. This is a perversion. Yeah, yeah, the the shadow of uh, Frankenstein there. Uh, at the same time, it's interesting looking at all this and thinking about like the sort of spirit, the, the spiritual and religious ideas that are kind of attributed to the idea of, oh, first and foremost, uh, you know, the, the the draining of the blood, the bleeding of the patient, but then the idea of, well, it looks like. Uh, Looks like uh, your treatment didn't take. You're still running, trying to run off to Paris. We need to replace that blood again. It it reminds me of uh, some of the criticisms leveled at uh, so-called young blood transfusion that we've uh, we, we've seen in in, uh, in recent years. You know, the idea that an an older person could uh, receive the transfused blood of a younger person uh, with some sort of health benefits, and I believe this is this is l- largely seen as uh, pseudoscientific. Um, but uh, but but I can I can see some of the same energy in young blood transfusion that you see kind of attributed uh, to uh, the the you know the, the poorly understood nature of blood transfusion at the time in the uh, uh, the 17th century. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. Like this view of it. there's some kind of uh, unholy experiment uh, that's being done in in dark rooms that we don't have access to. And uh, by the way, anyone who watched uh, the the television series uh, Silicon Valley, you might remember the the uh, the young blood um, uh, thing being a part of the plot. As the uh, the Hooli founder, uh, Gavin Belson, at one point has a quote unquote blood boy who's responsible <laughs> for providing bl- him blood transfusions to uh, uh, as as a as a I believe in like a life hack to keep him young. Oh man. Well, it's interesting again to compare to the case of uh, Denis and his rivals. I mean. Well, maybe I should finish it first and then say this. So in the end, uh, Holly Tucker's book makes the argument that it was Denis' opponents, especially a physician named Henri Martin de la Martiniere, who arranged the murder of the patient of Antoine Moroy by giving arsenic to Moroy's wife and, and encouraging her to poison him. Ultimately, she argues this was in an attempt to discredit Denis' medical theories. 
and it's a it's a case where there's really no good guys uh, because if <laughs> you know if Holly Tucker's theory is correct and they really did this, it was a case of two camps that were both entirely wrong uh, mm -hmm. fighting over this conceptual biomedical space. Oh wow, this is a, such a wonderful bit of uh, bit of history. It, I wonder if this has been adapted uh, in any kind of historical drama because it, oh, it, it seems should be. perfect for that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that that is the very weird story of early xenotransfusion in 1660s France. Now, xenotransfusion is uh, technically still on the table today, but it's generally not practiced with humans today because generally human blood is much more forthcoming. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the, this this strange history of. Um, of, of blood, not just a xenotransfusion, but again, thinking to the idea of like beer and urine or uh, or milk being used. Uh, this brings to mind the, the various alternative bloods you often encounter in humanoid beings in sci-fi and fantasy. You know, I instantly think of the milk-white blood in Ridley Scott's various androids or the, the yellow blood that you see in Phantasm's The Tall Man or in the, the androids of Halloween 3. Oof, one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, now, uh, on the, the subject of milk, uh, Sarkar writes that, indeed, in 1854, milk was injected into the veins of patients with uh, Asiatic cholera, thinking that it would help regenerate white blood cells. <laughs> oh, maybe, is it like a color match thing? <laughs> I know, that's what it sounds like, yeah. Now, the, the thing is, enough patients survived that they kept trying it. Uh, they, they, they're like, well, nobody's dying. It seems like they're eventually getting better. Let's just keep doing it. Uh, there was a lot of skepticism about the practice, uh, even at, the, at that time, and this never really took off. There is so much of medical history. In a way, it's almost am it's amazing that medicine exists at all, because I don't know what the year was where, on the whole, medicine became more helpful than harmful. But it's like shock recent. If you go not even all that far back into the past, it seems like the majority of medical interventions were, were just like painful and terrible and did nothing to help and maybe would kill you. Uh, yeah. Once again, I come back to the, that, that excellent uh, Soderbergh uh, television series, The Nick, which takes place in New York City in 1900. And it's just it, it, portraying just the cutting edge of medicine at the time. And even, you know, then you see like just the catastrophic ways they get it wrong at times, uh, you know, be it things like blood transfusions or drug interactions or the use of x-rays. Now, in terms of other potential blood substitutes, things you can put into the body in, in place of at least some of the blood. Uh, saline solution seemed a promising uh, solution for a bit there, <laughs> as doctors found that you could give a frog a complete transfusion of saline, and it would survive, though only for a short while. Um, however, th this, is, this stuff was eventually developed as a plasma volume expander. Now, Sarkar does not go into detail about the beer and the urine uh, tidbits, but they certainly don't highlight them as successes. So, um, uh, I, I assume they were not, uh, you know, huge medical successes. Now, in the 1800s, hemoglobin and animal plasma seemed promising, but there were technical hurdles to isolating enough hemoglobin and animal blood um, often contained toxins that were challenging to remove at the time. 
1883, the creation of Ringer's solution, this is named uh, for Sidney Ringer, who lived 1835 through 1910, uh, this changed things a bit. Uh, So this is a solution of sodium, potassium, and calcium salts that was found to restore healthy blood pressure after blood volume loss. And it's still used today as a blood volume expander, but it does not actually work as a blood substitute. Again, we have to think of all the things that, that blood does. And this particular solution, it doesn't, uh, for instance, do anything that red blood cells do, such as carrying oxygen. Because again, the human body is not just a big blood balloon. You know, it's not just about warm volume. It's about the vital function of the blood. So you can boost the volume, but you still need something in the veins doing the things that blood does. Now, as we discussed in our previous episode on blood types, uh, the Austrian uh, immunologist and pathologist Carl Landsteiner, who lived 1868 through 1943, discovered the primary ABO blood groups around the years 1900 or 1901. At the time, doctors knew that many blood transfusions caused adverse reactions in the recipient, mainly agglutination, which is where the the red blood cells clump together. Uh, Blood transfusion technology advanced a great deal from, from that point on. And um, an interest in blood substitutes was renewed, especially during the world wars of the 20th century. I think I said this in the last blood episode, but I can't see the name of Carl Landsteiner without thinking of him as uh, Carl Landstrider. <laughs> All right. So uh, fast forward to 1966. This is when um, perfluorochemicals or PFC was explored as a potential blood substitute. Uh, Doctors found that a rat's blood could be completely removed and replaced with the stuff, but only for a few hours at a time. Uh, This stuff then had to be replaced with actual blood, but a full recovery was possible. So obviously you can see the possibilities there. You know, something, something that's not blood, we could at least get in there for a little bit to stabilize the patient until actual blood can be made available. Uh, Sarkar writes that while there was renewed interest during the AIDS epidemic and during Vietnam, uh, for the most part, uh, advances in blood banking itself has, you know, has resulted in less research for the idea of a true blood substitute, because ultimately nothing takes the place of human blood quite like human blood. But if we're going to have synthetic blood, Sarkar points out that there are a few uh, key uh, points that must be met. Okay, like what? So first of all, it has to be safe and compatible with the human body. Uh, Ideally, it should also be universal for all blood types. Uh, You know, that's not an absolute requirement, but certainly if you're talking about something that is just on hand, say, in a field uh, hospital situation to hold the patient over until uh, an actual blood bank can come into play, uh, it would be nice if it just took care of all humans and you didn't have to to deal with type. Mm On top of that, it needs to be able to transport oxygen throughout the body, and it needs to offer more robust shelf stability, such as lasting a year rather than a mere month, as with donor blood. As such, there are basically two major areas of research underway. First of all, perfluorocarbons. Uh, These are inexpensive. They're devoid of biological materials that could spread infection. However, they're not water-soluble, and they carry much less oxygen compared to hemoglobin-based products. Second, you have hemoglobin-based products. So these are oxygen-containing. They're uh, involved in oxygen transport with our own red blood cells. So it's a great place to start. Now, the downside to this direction is that raw hemoglobin would break down into toxic compounds, and there are solution stability issues as well. Mm. Quote, the challenge in creating a hemoglobin-based artificial blood is to modify the hemoglobin molecule so these problems are resolved. 
So you could depend on either isolated hemoglobin or synthetically produced hemoglobin. If it's isolated, the product is actually made from human blood, typically blood for transfusions that has already expired. Animal blood is another option, apparently. But in this case, the hemoglobin would need to be modified before use. Hemoglobin synthesis, however, is a process that involves the use of a strain of E. coli bacteria that has the ability to produce human hemoglobin. Uh, There's a process involving bacterial destruction, fermentation, and isolation in a centrifuge, then final processing via the addition of water and electrolytes. So farming it from bacteria, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, as, as for limitations, again, as of this paper's writing, most of the hemoglobin-based products were lasting no more than 20 to 30 hours in the body. Whole blood transfusions last 34 days uh, for comparison. Also, this sort of blood substitute wouldn't bring clotting or disease-fighting to the table, so that leaves its potential, again, more as a short-term solution, something to get in the body uh, while you're waiting to access uh, the fruits of a blood bank. And of course, this is not even getting into some of the issues concerning biosecurity and privatization of synthetic biology as it concerns ethical dimensions, etc. Oh, wait, so you could have like uh, uh, somebody's got a patent on the blood that's in your arteries right now. And yeah, well, that's the well, that's the kind of thing that's often brought up um, in these discussions. I mean, however, I, I, obviously, though, I do I do think it is important to you know to stress that it would be great if there was if we were to develop a, a, a pure you know blood substitute that even if it only worked for a short time. Uh, could be kept on hand, you know, mm-hmm. the, something that that was universal, something with a, with a decent shelf life. Uh, you know, even if it wasn't a permanent solution, if it wasn't quite as good as human blood, if it could just serve as a as as a patch, you know, until a proper blood transfusion can take place, that would be immensely helpful. Totally. Should we take a break and then come back to talk a little more? Yes. All right, we're back. So uh, I was looking around for for more recent work. I was uh, looking at a 2017 study by Wang et al. published in uh, Biomacromolecules. And they point out that hemoglobin on its own, like we discussed, is toxic, uh, but that a chemically modified version forms um, methemoglobin, which doesn't bind oxygen. Uh, This uh, decreases the oxygen in the blood and the generation of methemoglobin produces cell-damaging hydrogen peroxide. So the researchers in this case looked into packaging hemoglobin in a quote-unquote benign envelope. In this case, um, polydopamine, or PDA, which was already (laughs) under study for biomedical applications. Their findings showed promise uh, with the package delivering oxygen while preventing the formation of uh, methemoglobin and hydrogen peroxide, and this resulted in minimal cell damage. Yeah, I mean, you can see pretty easily why you wouldn't really want too much hydrogen peroxide in your blood. (laughs) Right. Now, on the xenotransfusion front, uh, this was interesting. I came across a 2020 case report in clinical case reports by Rubenstein et al., which discusses the case of a 57-year-old Jehovah Witness with a form of pure red cell um, aplasia, or PRCA. Now, this is a type of uh, anemia that impacts the patient's ability to produce red but not white blood cells. So blood transfusions are an important form of treatment. But the individual in question turned down 
around these transfusions for religious reasons. And I believe this stems uh, with uh, the Jehovah's Witness faith uh, as an interpretation of abstaining from blood in the Bible. I think this is from uh, Leviticus. Yeah, there are multiple passages uh, cited by the Jehovah's Witnesses. I I think the most common one is this one in Leviticus chapter 17, where it says, uh, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes the atonement for the soul. Uh, And he says, therefore, to the children of Israel, you shall not eat blood. And this and some other passages are sort of interpreted in in a way to say, well, to be safe in following this, you probably shouldn't receive blood transfusions either. But I was actually this is this is interesting. There's a whole Wikipedia page on Je- the Jehovah's Witnesses and blood transfusions that has this mm-hmm. gigantic list of what types of procedures are allowed and what are not allowed according to church doctrine. Because there are there's not just one type of blood transfusion. There are all kinds of blood related products that you can have put into your body, and so there are some that they accept and some that they don't. In this case, however, it seems like it was it was pretty much a don't on the idea of more human blood being put into the patient uh, for this treatment. Uh, but uh, in this case, the physicians used a, quote, bovine uh, hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier. Quote, the patient received more than 20 units of HBOC-201 and was showing early signs of red blood cell count recovery. Although the patient did not survive, administration of the HBOC-201 did sustain her long enough to allow for administration of immunosuppressive therapy, which ultimately improved erythropoiesis. Thus, administration of alternative hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers in the setting of red cell aplasia associated with thymomus warrants further investigation. That's interesting. So this is a product that is derived from the hemoglobin, the the oxygen-carrying protein that would be found in the red blood cells originally of cows or some of their bovine. And uh, yeah, and I think this is in line with a lot of the stuff I was seeing about Jehovah's Witnesses' beliefs that – Often that they will receive certain types of blood products, but the objection more often is to whole blood. Now, leaving medical research and uh, and religious beliefs, uh, I, maybe we should come back to to our vampire introduction because I think you were hypothesizing that uh, vampires might might find themselves rather picky over what types of synthetic blood are, are tasty or or go well with their. I don't know what you would it be the digestive system. What system receives the blood in a vampire? <laughs> Well, I guess that's the tricky thing about vampires, right, is that they're, of course, creatures of fantasy and interpretations of their their blood drinking. It's going to range from the biological and the biologically grounded to the utterly magical. So what like what is the nature of the blood that the vampire is drinking? Are they drinking like the magical life force of a being, you know, the the splendid icor of uh, the sons of Adam? Or is it like actual blood? Are they an actual sanguivore, uh, much like a vampire bat? And obviously, depending on what your answer is, it's going to be you know entirely different. And certainly, you could have you could imagine a situation where you have a synthetic blood that is certainly helpful treating individuals who um, who who need it, but is going to be kind of useless or at least not all that desired by blood drinking uh, supernatural beings. But I thought you know what's what's the the one thing we can definitely do? We can definitely look to the vampire bats. We can look at blood drinking in the natural world and see if there's anything out there that at all relates to this question. 
So I was looking at Wanted, Blood for Vampire Bats by Lynn Laws, uh, writing for the Iowa State University College of Agricultural and Life Sciences. So vampire bats, we've discussed in the show before, typically feed on fresh cow blood uh, and only rarely bite humans. Typically, for captive vampire bats in like a laboratory or a zoo environment or some sort of enclosure, cow blood does the trick. Um, uh, but in zoo conditions especially, an anticoagulant is added to the blood to keep it fresh enough for feeding via little petri dishes that are placed out in the enclosure. Oh, I see. So like if you don't add an anticoagulant, you could have the same problem you get where you leave a soup out and it forms a skin. <laughs> yeah, one imagines. Yeah, that it, it, you need to keep you want the blood. Obviously, vampire bats are not going to go around in the, their natural environment drinking blood out of little puddles. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you need to keep it fresh. You need something to fresh it up. An anticoagulant seems to do the trick. There apparently have also been experiments with freezing the blood, and there's hope that we could eventually create a dried powder that could be reconstituted at zoos for the bats. You know, <gasps> so, you, so you add water to it, and you got blood. You know, sort of like <laughs> a Kool-Aid powder, but for blood drinkers. Amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, this brings me back. I think there's a part in Guillermo del Toro's Blade 2 where like Russian vampires are like snorting lines of of like crystallized blood or something or something, you know, they're supposed to be crystallized blood. Um, so I don't know. Maybe they ran across the same sort of research when they were uh, putting together that film. That's funny. Would it be different snorted than it would be just drank? What? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> Maybe it's a psychological it. difference. Just... Yeah, I don't know. I, you get the idea. It's like, or it's vampires. They just like blood. They'll take it any way yeah. they can get it. They'll drink it. They'll snort it up their nose. They'll free take a bath blood. in it. Yeah, yeah. Free, free base the blood. They'll smoke the blood. Um, uh, you know, well, whatever serves as a useful metaphor for, uh, uh, you know, for, for us to use in creating a vampire. Like the vampire as addict, the vampire as, uh, as you know, a moral fiend, etc. Now, going back to what we were discussing, though, and the, the possibilities for, for uh, synthetic blood, if you end up with a blood substitute that is actually made from human blood, you know, that's, uh, that's depending on, uh, on hemoglobin, uh, that would be an interesting scenario, right? Because you could potentially have fake blood for the vampires to keep the vampires at bay that is actually made from human blood, but maybe is like, you know, it is the, the result of, um, of blood bank blood that has not been fully utilized. So the vampires might not be really all that happy about it, but maybe, you, you know, you wouldn't be, ha be having to just bleed yourself dry for the vampires. You would, uh, you would have like a secondary product that makes them mostly happy. Yeah, they'd be helping us deal with medical waste. Yeah, <laughs> no, that would that seems kind of like a very very much a reduced stature for something like Count Dracula. You know, it's like I know you want to be the Lord of the Night and you know drink our blood and, and have us serve you, but what if you just gobbled up our medical waste? <laughs> Are you on board? Yes. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to go ahead and close it out here. Uh, we're going to remind everybody that if you want to support the show. Uh, great thing to do is to rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, uh, you'll go to our iHeart page. There'll be a tab for some merchandise. You can go to our t-shirt shop and check out some cool designs there. That's another way you can support the show. Buy a shirt with a monster on it. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for 
the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.